On the 6th of April, 1896, 1500 years after the Roman Emperor Theodosius decreed that all cult practices, including games, be stopped. The Olympic Games returned in its modern form thanks to Pierre de Coubertin and a few gentlemanly buddies. Welcome to the very first Olympipod with me, Chris O'Reilly, a below-average international athlete, and Ruth Fitzpatrick, an above-average international non-athlete. In each episode, we will take a deep, unofficial, and borderline acceptable dive into the world's favourite quadrennial multi-sport extravaganza, opening with the humble beginnings of Athens, 1896. Ruth. Uh, you mentioned that the Olympics began on the what, what was it, the sixth of April? The sixth of April. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what calendar was that, Chris? That was on the Gregorian calendar. It was, Chris. It was on the Gregorian calendar. Who did not know about that, Chris? The Americans did not know about that, Ruth. The Americans! The Americans did not know about that. Yeah, Team USA arrived in Athens on the 24th of March, believing that they had a good week and a half to prepare before the Games opened. Uh, But they were awoken in the early hours of the next morning by a brass band outside their hotel on their way to the opening ceremony. Because, of course, the 6th of April is the 25th of March in the Julian calendar, which the Greeks use. Now, I'm going to have a bit of a full disclosure because, you know, this this podcast is going to be all about the facts, you know, and like far be it from me to introduce a fact that perhaps is not a fact. I do wonder if this story is a bit apocryphal. It does sound a bit, you know, that they arrived in their hotel, checked in, didn't know that uh, the Olympics would start the next day. So I have heard, I came across one account that's slightly less dramatic, which says that the Americans did discover their mistake in Naples and then had two or three days to rush to Greece to make it on time. Um, either, either way, wasn't an ideal start for them. So let's hope that it's not a foreshadowing of our podcast. <laughs> um, J- James Connolly, who I'm sure we will mention at some point in this epipod, was particularly irate about this. And he said that this was just further proof of the USA's provincialism. Yes. And uh, he, uh, James Connolly's account of the whole thing is amazing. I mean, he, he wrote uh, a book called Seaborne, 30 Years of Voyaging. And there's uh, a couple of excerpts from that uh, which detail that fact of them arriving on the day before, not knowing. When we get into James, we can maybe uh, talk a bit more about his book and his views on the whole thing. That story is, as you said, there's a few different versions of it, and it's not quite as dramatic as the the one in the short TV series, which I watched about the whole Olympics, in which uh, they only discovered once the Americans had left on the boat. But uh, I don't want to delve into that too much because it is factually all over the place. And as you said, we want to try and stick to what facts we have from 1896. Well, for the, fir- for, for the first episode anyway, after that we can descend into madness, you know, like the 1904 marathon. Chris, so how did the modern Olympic Games come about? 
Where do we start? Shall we give the credit to Pierre de Coubertin? Well, I mean, I think you give, I think you give the credit to the Greeks. But yeah. Well, yes, that's where the ancient Olympics <laughs> came from. And uh, But it was Pierre de Coubertin who seemed to drive the momentum towards having the games reinvented in what we know as its official and modern form. And we could go into real depth about the different versions of Olympic games and other games which took place in the build-up to 1896. But we'll we'll focus on Pierre de Coubertin, who really the only thing I knew about him before researching for this pod was number one, there's a spirit medal awarded at every Olympics uh, in his memory. And number two, Paris's handball team, PSG, play at the Pierre de Coubertin Arena, which is very old and not very exciting, which I guess uh, really suits him down to the ground. But Pierre was a baron and, well, didn't have much to do, I guess, with his time. He had a bit of an interest in sport, but I don't think he was exactly obsessed with the idea of the Olympics. It wasn't until there was a couple of different people and a couple of different occasions which inspired him to take up the thing that he would dedicate the rest of his life to, the Wenlock Olympic Games, which takes place in Shropshire in England to this day, I believe, still takes place. Uh, yeah, including a category in Quick Quickish, which is uh, I, I'm a mad fan of that now. William Penny Brooks is the gentleman at the uh, Wenlock Olympian Games who helped inspire him. And there were a few other, I guess you could call them, classic scholars whose lectures and papers brought Pierre de Coubertin's attention. I mean, the 19th century was full of romanticism about, you know, the ancient times. And there was a lot of, I'm not sure they necessarily focused on kind of the more unsavory aspects of the ancient Olympics, but certainly there was a lot to be taking inspiration from in terms of that idea of the ideal physique. And then also internationalism, which was becoming a very uh, strong political movement in the 19th century. I think a man who inspired both Pierre de Coubertin and Evangelos Zappas, who we'll get to in a moment, is a poet called Panagiotis Soutsos, who in 1835 wrote about the ancient Olympics, or the Olympics as it was just known then, and inspired a, this Zappas gentleman, a shipping merchant, to actually sponsor and create an Olympic Games of sorts in the mid-19th century, so way before this opening games, which uh, I think the first one took place in 1859, which is a complete disaster. You know, it was held over three Sundays. There were things like uh, climbing up a greasy pole, for example, oh, as one of the events. Which is absolutely brilliant, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> that needs to be revived. Well, yeah, the well. greasy pole event. <laughs> greasy pole or otherwise, there was one quote from the chronicler of the time who said, there never was a more ridiculous affair than the comedy which took place at the Plateau Ludovico, and one would err if we were to term it Olympic Games. So we shall not. So we shan't. It shan't. This, this, is, a, this is an Olympopod. We're not doing any fake pretenders before this, no. We shall not. So that's, uh, I guess, where the, the inspiration came from. I think originally Pierre de Coubertin wanted to have the first Olympics in 1900 in Paris coincide with the Exposition Universelle or the World Fair. Mm-hmm. But that was six years before the fact. And I guess the overwhelming uh, idea was that they needed to have one beforehand. So they decided to go with 1896. Yeah, and, and the, and the modern games and all of their revivals, there was this huge movement in Greece, especially after it got its independence, 
to have this event to kind of bring back that nationalism and that national pride. So, I mean, you mentioned Zappos. I mean, he was a Greek businessman who put a huge amount of money both in the Zappos Olympics and then also in the first Olympic Games in 1896. So what did this first Olympic Games in 1896 look like, Ruth? What sports did we have? What kind of disciplines? Did we have anyone come from outside of Greece? We did, Chris. We did. It was an international games. Actually, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting, because usually when you look at Olympic Games, especially quite far in the past, there's always these random sports in it that you're going, oh, that sounds brilliant or ridiculous. Actually, all of the sports that uh, took place... 10 originally were meant to be there. It was nine then after sailing got cancelled. Are all sports that are still in the modern or or in the 21st century Olympic Games? I will now recite them off the top of my head and alphabetically. Um, Athletics, cycling, fencing, gymnastics, shooting, swimming, tennis, weightlifting, wrestling. And sailing was also to take place but they were cancelled because of uh, poor weather on the plans day of the competition. Hmm. So all of those, all of those are still uh, sports in the 21st century in the Olympics. There were definitely disciplines within it that are no longer featured, but all of the main the sports themselves are still featured. Have we even spoken about the medals at these games and what people got? We haven't. We should. We probably should because our like absolute legions of fans after this uh, first Olympopod will probably be uh, tweeting at us saying, "But there weren't that many medals." <laughs> so go on, Chris. Tell us about the medals. When we're when we're talking here about we're talking about first, second, and third place, so gold, silver, and bronze medals, as the IOC yeah. has in uh, in its infinite wisdom rectified. Uh, after the fact so we're we're talking about what happened in 1996 as if it were the present and we had gold silver and bronze but back then there was a silver medal awarded to the winner and a bronze medal awarded to second place and diddly squat for anybody else so uh, alongside the the silver medal that winners got, they also got a diploma and a crown of olive branches while runners-up received a copper medal a diploma and the olive branches. I think um, in the swimming, Alfred Hayot also got like this massive kind of like um, shield. Oh, yeah, like it's, it's yeah, pretty cool. Didn't know that. Okay, we'll we'll uh, we'll push it up on our Twitter page for the legions of followers to uh, have a look at. That's what they got then, but we're we're talking about gold, silver, and bronze in the modern yeah. context because even though third place at the time got nothing. We still like to uh, consider them nowadays as being bronze medalists. And pretty much anyone who didn't uh, place for a second or third has been completely lost to time. Like we, we don't know the names of every single person who competed or indeed um, every single country that competed. Uh, because Chile claimed that they were there. So vigorous. Nah. <laughs> Well, not buying it. it nobody else accepts that Chile were there <laughs> this guy was on none of the records uh, yeah but uh, do you remember his name no because he wasn't there <laughs> he wasn't there why was it why would I learn about somebody who wasn't even there I uh, did read somewhere that the Chilean government uh, in, at some stage in the last 20 years actually hired a forensic uh, pathologist uh, who then went through all the photos and using modern face recognition 
uh, managed to like say that there was like a fifty percent chance that he was there because they they maybe saw him in a, a grainy photo. I, I like he was supposed to have competed in the 100, 400 and 800 meters, if I'm not mistaken. And I think they were pretty well recorded. I think so. If he was there, this Chilean 50 percent or otherwise, then I'm pretty sure we would have known. Oh, and I've, and I've absolutely 100 percent just uh, invented that percentage. OK, well, there you go. <laughs> just, just full disclosure. So from those events you listed earlier as the first in the modern Olympic era, which was your favorite in 1896, Ruth? It's weightlifting, Chris. It's weightlifting. Okay, this, I mean, people who know me know that weightlifting is my favorite uh, spectator sport because, I mean, there, there doesn't have to be an explanation because it is just the sport of sports. It, it, like there is, there is nothing else to compete against it. There's a couple of stories from weightlifting which I really like and one in particular that is quite contentious and it has to do with uh, what many people would have considered at the time the most handsome gentleman at those 1896 Olympics, handsome Launston Elliot from Scotland. And I would recommend everybody to go Google him to have a look at his pictures. Now, quite a man. Different, different standards of beauty in those days. However, I would still recommend everyone go do that right now. Pause the podcast, Google it, come back to us, and we'll start again. It's interesting you said his unusual standard of beauty. Uh, people were attracted, apparently, uh, by his uncommon type of beauty, they said. He was the finest man of English birth, which I'm pretty sure the Scots would not be quite happy with. He even received an offer of marriage from a highly placed lady admirer. He was also born in India. He was born in India, but you know that's just a, a sign of uh, the colonial past of Great Britain. I do like that there was this um, throwaway fact about him be- starting to uh, become a bodybuilder at the age of 13 when somebody commented that he was a particularly well-built 13-year-old, which like, I, I don't know now if you could... I'd really like to see a picture of him at 13. <laughs> okay. Like, what did he look like? <laughs> what we do know is that he was a very good lifter in his adult life and he shared the the medals with a man called Viggo Jensen of Denmark and this is where the contentious part comes in there were two events which uh, they both competed in uh, basically clean and jerk style weightlifting one of them was two-handed lifting one of them was one-handed lifting and in the two-handed lifting which took place first both Lonson Elliott and Viggo Jensen lifted the same weight but the jury including Prince George as the chairman of the jury ruled that Jensen had done so in a better style which was not part yeah. of the judging thing and my problem here is that wasn't Prince George Danish oh god well I mean he's Greek but he's Danish. This just sounds like the, the 2016 boxing. Like, it shows that nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, so they, they tried to have a, a tiebreaker afterwards. Unfortunately, both lifters were unable to actually improve on their weights with uh, the tiebreaker. So they went back to the style version in the end, and Viggo Jensen picked up the gold medal there. Almost immediately afterwards, though, there was the one-handed lift, and uh, Handsome Launston got his revenge because Viggo Jensen had injured his shoulder in the uh, extended lifts of the two-handed one. So 
Elliot got his gold medal in the end. He also competed in the 100-meter sprint. He finished third in his heat and did not qualify for the final. He also tried his hand at wrestling, and he was beaten in the first round by Carl Schumann of Germany, who was also the gymnastic champion. And he also tried to compete at the rope climbing event within gymnastics and finished in last place. He tried his hand at a few things. Uh, turns out he was very much a weightlifter. Yeah, to be fair, a lot of the athletes at these early uh, modern Olympics really did put their hands to quite a few different sports in, you know, very uh, varied disciplines. They were mostly, for the most part, um, gentlemen of, not, not, they didn't have a huge amount to do. Uh, so they just became kind of good at sport in Lots of different, but they could run. They could ru- run up a rope, you know? Well, that's how you, that's the only way you could qualify for this Olympics. Uh, first of all, have the means to get there. And the Americans, for example, they needed a bit of help getting over there. They were, they were gentlemen, so to speak, mostly college athletes at the time. But the British who barely had any athletes come over, most of them came from the British embassy in Greece. But there was even contention about them participating but because they worked for a living <laughs> that they weren't <laughs> that they weren't true gentlemen and amateurs so it's really was just a pursuit of the rich at the time and just a bunch of lads trying out a bunch of different sports well on that subject so alfred heos who uh, was the hungarian swimmer he had to take time off university to come to the games and he was quite chastised by his university when he came back with his two gold medals they said to him i hope you're not expecting any congratulations and we'll wait until you finish your exams before we give those but at the athens games there was no stadium for the swimming events and they decided that this was just an unnecessary expense so they were all entirely staged in the open sea this was not a very pleasant experience for anyone involved. The water was freezing and competitors had to contend with four metre waves. He won two of the three swimming events, the 100 metre and the 1200 metre freestyle. All of the three events, the 500 as well, took place one after another or else he would have gone for the three events. He really wanted to win the three gold, but it just wasn't practical to go 100, 500, 1200. Before the 1200, he had kind of got the feel for the water in the 100. He decided that uh, he was going to have to take some action to be able to stay in the water for that long. So he smeared himself in a one centimetre thick layer of grease. Oh, yeah. He, he stated afterwards, my will to live completely overcame my desire to win. Quite a few of his opponents had to be fished out of the sea, frozen. Um, because they had not smeared themselves in one centimetre thick of grease. He did become an architect and a very, very famous architect. And in fact, he uh, designed the main Hungarian swimming centre, which is named after him. But he went to take the silver for architecture at the 1924 Paris Olympics when arts were still part of the uh, Olympians. He's the only person to win a medal in both art and athletics at the Olympics. Did you know, Ruth, that that silver should have been a gold? Well, I know they didn't award a gold. Do you know why? I don't. Because it was in 1924 in Paris and the French didn't want to give a gold medal to a foreigner. (laughs) 
so he actually he 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 was the he was the winner uh they just didn't award a gold medal in that competition in which he designed a plan for the uh, olympic stadium i do really like how there used to be art at the olympics i think that's something we could definitely bring back or like in the um ancient greek one they had a class for trumpeting i would have liked a trumpeting section to, come, to make a comeback at 2020. Well, you might be able to uh, have your way, at least within this podcast universe, at the end of the show, Ruth. I'll get to that one. Okay, interesting. A bit of a tease there. Exactly. Hayosh, he also played football for Hungary. Very talented man. And I think the one of the, the saddest and most interesting parts of his story is why he uh, began swimming in the first place. And that was after his father had drowned in the Danube. That somehow inspired him to take up swimming, uh, apparently. And uh, yeah, a couple of swimmer, uh, European champion and Olympic champion, uh, great footballer as well. I do, I do like. Um, there was this anecdote that I think he said to the king, the prince asked him, "How did he learn how to swim?" And he responded, "In the water." <laughs> That's great. Is he your favorite athlete at these games? I do quite like him, I have to say. He, he, and do you know that his uh, brother was in the 1906 Olympics too, swimming? Oh, uh, the, the not Olympic Olympics. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, the very accomplished family. But yeah, you know, him himself, like the, he, as you said, he played for his country for, in football. Uh, he was also a manager of the Hungarian football team, I think, at some point. Oh. Very, very skilled architect. Yeah, so he was. I think he, I think he would be one of my favorites of the games, if you can truly have a favorite. It's a tough call. I think I I've got like a, a short list of three. I okay. would say no, I won't say three. Yeah, three. It's a three way tie for me between James Connolly, John Boland, and Robert Garrett. Which one do you want to hear about first? They they all have a bit of an Irish uh, l- uh, lilt to them, do they? Uh, well, Garrett, I don't know, does he? I don't know. Probably, uh, they're American, of course. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, start at the very beginning. We'll start. Okay, we'll start with the very first modern Olympic champion then, shall we? And yes. that's uh, James B. Connolly. As you said, he's got a bit of an Irish connection and his parents came from the Aran Islands in Ireland and moved over to Boston where he was born. He was one of 12 children. Seems about right. Yeah, he worked for most of his life, deciding to to work instead of going to high school. But at some point, he decided that he wasn't happy with his career and that he was going to take up different paths. So he was self-taught, turned out to be quite a good student and managed to get himself accepted to study classics at Harvard University, which is where we begin our story of James Connolly at going to these Olympics. He uh, went to the chairman of the athletic committee in Harvard about going, and basically they were told him to get lost, that uh, he was going to go to Athens on a, a junket just for a bit of a lark. And they told him, well, all you can do basically is leave, resign your position at Harvard, and when you come back, you can apply again. Well, to that, he said... He's done with Harvard. Good day, sir. And he decided to go to Athens, uh, no longer a student. He managed to get some support to go. Some people claim that he paid his own way. Others claim that he got a bit of support from the Irish-American community and the athletic community in Boston. Either way, he ended up in Athens on the day before 
the game starting. And this is where I want to jump into an excerpt from his book, which I mentioned before, 30 Years of Voyaging. Tom Barry, a chum of mine, was making a joyride of the trip. And he said, lucky thing, you've got 12 days to get in shape before the opening of the games. We were at breakfast when two members of the committee entered and passed around programs for the day. I glanced casually at my program, and then less casually. Here was a business. The date for the opening of the games was today and according to the Greek calendar, not ours. There were no 12 days left for our training. The games opened that very day. Zoops, said I, after 6,000 miles and 16 days of travel. Some of us would have to compete that very day. The trial heats of the 100 meters would be held, and Garrett of Princeton and I were in for the trials and the finals both. Garrett in the discus and I in the triple saute. Hop, step and jump, or two hops and a jump. I am very impressed that my opening fact actually is corroborated by evidence. I am really delighted with that. <laughs> I'm glad to be of service. It wasn't just pure bullshit. I'm delighted. <laughs> there, there's hope for the podcast. There is hope. And now we'll move forward to later that day on his first jump. Now, as mentioned in the previous paragraph, the uh, triple saute or the triple jump was either a hop, step and a jump or two hops and a jump. And that's important as we read into this one. I breathe on my hands, rub them dry in my jersey, grip them hard, and sprinted for the takeoff. And here's one for the psychologists. I came to Athens all set to do a hop, step, and jump, yet in that stadium that day, in contest for an Olympic championship, I shifted at the last moment to a two hops and a jump, which I had not jumped since I was a boy competing against other boys. Now... The rules at the time forbade the judges to tell the competitors how far they'd actually jumped. But the track coach of the London Athletic Club, a gentleman named Perry, was smoothing the earth in the pit after each jump. And after my second try, I said to him, they ought to let a fella know how far he jumps. And his answer was, as far as you're concerned, you can go back to your dressing room and take your bath. You have this event in your pocket right now. When the other two finalists were done, the judges checked up and Prince George of Greece, the chief field judge and the one who talked English, came to me saying, you are the victor. You have beaten the second man by a metre. The thought next came to me that our national hymn was for me winning my event. To myself, I said, you're the first Olympic victor in 1500 years. A moment later, the gang back home will be tickled when they hear of it. And that is the story of James Connolly and our first modern Olympic champion. And he followed it up with a second place finish in the high jump and third place in the long jump as well. So quite the jumper was young Irish American James Connolly. He left speechless. I, I, but no, no, I was I was trying to remember back to the film. Is Angela Lansbury his mum? No, okay. Angela Lansbury is Robert Garrett's mum. Oh, okay, let's hear about Robert Garrett and his mum who solved who solved murders in her uh, small village. <laughs> I was a teapot. James Connolly was played by that red-headed man who ended up in CSI Miami. 
I think quite a famous right. actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'll be perfectly honest, Chris. I I saw the five minute uh, snippet you sent me. I didn't go immediately to go find the film. Well, the fact that you thought it was five minutes when it was in fact about thirty seconds says everything <laughs> you need to know about that. But I sat through all. I think it was three hours, 50 minutes of it. Brilliant. <laughs> and then discovered that an awful lot of it had nothing, nothing, nothing to do with history. Robert Garrett, he really spoiled the party for the Greeks, to be fair, because he won the discus and the shot put. And the Greeks believe that oh, the mortifying. discus was their event. I mean, they were expecting to, uh, to run away with it. Nobody could beat them. They were... The, the kings of the discus. You're not meant to run away with the discus. No, well... You're, you're meant to just go spin and spin around in a circle. <laughs> he spun around and threw it further than the rest. The funny thing about it is that when he was at... I think he studied at Princeton. And they had only seen pictures of the events. They actually did, they didn't know how big a discus was. And so they had a discus made which was 10 kilograms heavy which is about five times the weight of the actual discus. So when he actually saw what he had to throw in the end, it was like, all right, happy days. And he's going (laughs) to, and he ended up uh, winning. It wasn't too comfortable, but he he won the event. But beforehand, he wasn't even thinking about competing because he thought that he had no chance because he was throwing this 10 kilogram discus and uh, wasn't getting very far with it. So he ended up winning uh, much to the dismay of the Greeks and he ended up winning the shot put as well. He also competed in 1900, which we'll speak about in the 1900 podcast in the next one. Yeah, it's the more su- it's the more suitable place to start talking about 1900, the 1900 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and his story there is quite interesting. Okay, let's get on to the next person. Come on. Uh, well, I, I'm not even finished on Garrett. I mean, he. Oh my god. Okay. Oh well. Sorry. Or is okay, it, am I finished on Garrett? Let me see. No, I think that's it. I don't really have many notes, and I'm just yeah. Garrett, uh, a great man in the field. Turns out to be not such a great man in real life, uh, despite his love of archaeology. Not so good on the uh, human rights aspect of things, but it was the uh, 19th century. So. <laughs> Do you want to know? Okay. Okay. I mean, you're really thinking us having there, but okay, we'll, we'll do our own research. Come on, last person. John Mary Pius Boland. Now okay, this... He was actually Irish. He was actually Irish. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, due to Ireland being a part of the UK, his medals belong to Great Britain. But John Boland didn't even have any intention to compete at the Olympics. He was uh, a bit of a classics student as well. He studied in Oxford and he was visiting Athens. He competed in the tennis, didn't he? He did. He went to Athens originally for a bit of bit of fun to check out the games and to check out Greece, which he'd studied so much about. And he was having dinner one evening with a tennis player, Dionysus Castigas, who convinced him to take part in the tennis event because there weren't many people actually taking part. So the tennis event itself turned out to be a bit of a mishmash of people who were specialists in other sports and John Boland himself, who didn't even really like tennis. Uh, He was more of a golf and a cricket man. He did play tennis recreationally, but he once described the sport in his journal as decidedly inferior to cricket. Nevertheless, he went on to play. He found some trousers. He found a tennis bat of sorts, but he had to play in his normal heeled leather shoes. That didn't stop him, though. He ended up winning both the singles and the doubles event. And in the final of both events, 
he beat the man who convinced him to take part, Dionysus Castigas. And there's a bit of a rumor as well that uh, John Boland requested that the Irish flag was prepared to run up uh, the pole alongside the Union Jack. Uh, he didn't mention that in his personal journal, though, so who knows whether that's true or just a, a bit of propaganda. He ended up being an MP for South Kerry in uh, the British Parliament and was a big advocate of preserving the Irish language. And very fittingly, he then died on St. Patrick's Day in 1958. Chris, do you think you would have won at the 1896 Olympics? In tennis? Anything, Chris. If we could bring you there, do you think you would have won something? And if so, what would you have won? I wouldn't have been allowed to compete, but to be perfectly honest, I probably wouldn't have won anything anyway. Would you have won something at the 1896 Olympics? Oh, I... Come on, Chris. I'm putting you on the spot. Yes, I would win something. Okay. And would you come first or is it just like you, you would you'd place, you'd get, but you wouldn't get a medal because I didn't have medals, but yeah. I would have fancied myself in the tennis doubles alongside John Boland. Okay. to win gold okay. uh, a truly irish gold medal he ended up competing in the doubles with a german i believe so it was a mixed uh, medal for the uk and and germany so yeah i, I would have fancied i'm a decidedly below uh, if i said i was a below average international athlete in the beginning of this podcast i'm a bad tennis player but i think i would have done okay in 1896 yeah yeah i, w- I won't ask you this question every uh Olympopod, but just, you know, 1896, I think that would have been a really good shot for you. Yeah, it would have been my chance. I mean, if I was a gentleman and had the means, then I would have fancied my my chances of winning something. I would have yeah. competed in, I would have been like these guys, I would have competed in everything. Yeah, like, I know, I, like you would have gone into the rope climbing, even though you'd never seen a rope. And um, obviously there was no greasy pole, so you couldn't do the greasy pole, but... Um, like, yeah, I, I, presumably you would do the 100 meter and the 400 meter. 800 meters was my my speciality growing up. Okay. And I, th- I, think I, I think I would have gone for that. I mean, I'm definitely not a 12 second sprinter. That's for sure. Also, Chris, we don't have to transport you here, uh, uh, transport you there as a 30 year old. We, we can go and bring you at 22 if you like. Okay. Pre, <laughs> pre my first of three knee surgeries. Okay, let's yes. do that. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, then I'll def- I definitely win something. Twenty-one-year-old uh, me pre-knee surgeries would have won something. Oh, that's a big call. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> You've tricked me into. Oh God, yeah, yeah. All right, I'm sticking to it. Once the lockdown is down, I'm gonna start timing you. Yeah, no, I mixed doubles. No, not mixed doubles. <laughs> <laughs> pure no, doubles. Pure, no. pure doubles. Me and John Boland we would have come away with victory. A brand new discipline that came in was the marathon because there wasn't a marathon before the 1896 games. It was created obviously as a nod to the original Olympics and to the uh, Greek myth of the first marathon. But because of that, we're going to talk about a lot of different marathons because a running theme through the early Olympics is the absolute batshit craziness of the marathon event. Most of the competitive races in the 19th century they very rarely went over the 5k mark. And there was actually a huge debate before the event as to whether it was even ethical or possible to stage a race of this distance. 
Uh, there were also dubious reports at the time that three Greek athletes had died during the training process because the Greeks really wanted to win this event. They really felt that this was their event. There were 17 athletes, 13 from Greece. So the Greeks really needed to win this. There was a lot of pressure building because they weren't winning any of the events that were considered primetime events. They were winning a few minor gold medals, uh, not really catching the public's imagination. And there's a claim that George Averoff, a very rich man who helped to basically save the Olympics, and, and I think he had one million drachmas invested to actually make the games happen. He uh, offered the hand of his daughter and another million or 100,000. You know, there's a few uh, varying sources here as, as a dowry, uh, <laughs> as, well, as well as the hand of his daughter to a Greek winner, if they could do it. So there was a lot riding on this. And uh, amateurism has gone out the window at this stage. <laughs> and the pressure was on for the Greeks to win. Yeah. As I said, this was a very arduous task for anybody because it was just such an unknowable uh, distance. And a number of the competitors collapsed or bowed out along the way. Edwin Flack, the Australian who'd won both the 800 and 1500 a few days before, collapsed with only a few kilometres to go. And one of the other front runners for much of the early stages, Alban Lemersu, dropped out just after the 32 kilometre mark. And... Um, but then by some accounts, he actually reached the halfway point in 55 minutes, which, Bonkers. you know, yes, like maybe he should have reserved some of that for the final uh, 10. Possibly he, they should have had a look at the strategy of the eventual uh, Greek winner, Spiridon Louis, who decided to stop off uh, to visit his future father-in-law's tavern for a glass of cognac around kilometre 25. He also had a very interesting approach to pre-race nutrition. Um, he fasted the night before to, uh, just so that he could concentrate on prayer and then ate an, a whole chicken the morning of the race. Protein and God. That's all you Protein need. Protein and God. What else do you need? And a bit of a bit of cognac as well. And a bit of cognac, yeah. And so as you said, this was an event that the Greeks really wanted to win and they did. Initially, they took first, second and third place. However... Spiridon Belokas, the third place finisher, was disqualified. Now, Chris, this is going to be a bit of a tease for Olympopod number three. But why was Spiridon Belokas disqualified? Tell me, Ruth. It was for a similar reason why someone else was disqualified in a marathon that was going to take place eight years later. He was disqualified because he... um, undertook some of the race in a horse and carriage. There was the Hungarians who protested afterwards, right? Because yeah. they, they originally thought that, yes, it was a, a clean sweep, one, two, three for Greece, but uh, Belokas was a dirty little cheater. However, the other, the other spirit on, though, he did become a national hero on winning this. And you said uh, that he was offered a diary. He didn't take it, uh, but he did receive a huge number of gifts and endorsements. Those included wine, free haircuts for life, clothes, and from a chocolate factory, £2,000 of chocolate. But all he wanted was a cart to carry his water to and from the well for the rest of his life. So he was a real... uh... And he was later jailed for fraud. Yes, but uh, only for one year, (laughs) right? (laughs) Only for one year. Only for one year, so it obviously wasn't that bad a fraud. Um, 
And just as an aside, the very next day, um, a woman, Stamata Ravithi, ran uh, the marathon. She wasn't allowed. She had been told that there were American women there that she could compete against, uh, but that race never transpired. So she ran it herself in five hours, 30 minutes. And at the end, she found witnesses to attest to her time. So not the first official uh, female representative at the Olympics, but the first unofficial didn't take much longer for women to actually take part in the Olympics. They got there a few years later. If Pierre de Coubertin had his own way, they probably never would have competed. Yeah, he didn't. He, he, he thought it kind of, uh, it, it would affect the men <laughs> um, and affect the purity of the Olympic Games, which... Yeah. Impractical, uninteresting, unesthetic, and simply incorrect. But uh, yeah, women did get there eventually, but they'd have to wait until 1984 to actually compete at the marathon event, which is quite incredible. So well done to uh, Stamata Ravithi. There was another mystery woman as well, Mel Pumin, which... Uh, was there, Chris? No, there wasn't. There wasn't. No. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean mean to cut across your facts quite so, yeah. But sorry, please tell me about this mystery woman. Ruth, it is not a fact because it is a lie. And I think uh, stories of Melpamine, this uh, mystery other runner, I think she she was supposed to have competed before the Olympics. That only came up like 10, 20 years later. So there was only, only one woman. I think my favorite bit of the marathon story is right at the end, though. Where a crowd of 100,000 people were there to, to welcome Spiridon Luis in. And the Greek crown princes jumped onto the track and ran alongside him as he stumbled his way to victory. So that just showed how big an occasion it was for the Greeks to finally win. surprised i was very surprised at how much i enjoyed the shooting at the 20 in rio 2016 you know i kind of went there because the ticks were relatively cheap because nobody wants to see the shooting and uh, yeah it was uh, the the, the, uh, clay shooting very very enjoyable well tell us about the the shooting of 120 years earlier uh, I actually wasn't there for that one. However, um, the Payne brothers, John and Sumner, really kind of swept the board. But this was because they brought much superior guns. So there was the, they like they won by I think quite a ridiculous margin compared to the others. And uh, John Payne took the twenty-five meter military pistol gold. And he dropped out of the 30-meter free pistol to allow his brother uh, to take the gold in that. That's only fair, I think. And that's because, well, Sumner, his brother, didn't even know he was going to the Olympics until he was picked up by John in Paris one day. Okay. (laughs) So John Payne was was planning on going all along. He was uh, based in the US. He was a Harvard graduate. And he decided that... The Americans could do with one more shooter, so he was going to pick up his unsuspecting brother, Sumner, who was based in Paris. He didn't contact his brother in advance. He didn't tell him about the Olympic Games. John simply showed up at Sumner's office in Paris, and uh, Sumner then wrote about this. The last of March, I came home to luncheon one day and found my brother, Lieutenant J.B. Payne, sitting in my office. I had not the slightest idea (laughs) that he was on this side of the pond. 
When does the next train start for Athens, said he. I don't know, said I. Well, well, he said. Find out and get your revolvers and we will go there for the Boston Athletic Association has sent a team over and, well, we may be able to help them out. So the pair gathered as many guns as they could possibly get their hands on because they weren't sure what type of uh, events and what type of guns they would need and about 3,500 rounds of various ammunition just in case. And they went to Athens to destroy the rest of the field. Five years later, Sumner came home to find his wife in bed with uh, his one of his daughter's teachers. Um, so he shot at him four times, missing him each time. He was briefly jailed and charged with assault, but he was actually eventually left off, uh, let off the more serious charge of uh, manslaughter because they decided if he really wanted to shoot him, he could have shot him. <laughs> exactly. And I have the Olympic medals to prove mm-hmm. it. Glorious. Ruth, question for you. Okay, give it to me. Was the Sabre event in fencing fixed? Um, I like It has been mentioned in passing that it was, and I don't know. Was it, Chris? Well, fixed is maybe one way to put it. Because because the Greeks the Greeks did get um they did place first and second didn't they they did place first and second and Felix Adolf Schmal from Austria got royally screwed over I think it is fair to say whether it was fixed or otherwise he got screwed over and I'll tell you a little bit about little Felix he had competed in the hundred kilometer cycling race the day before this event but he didn't finish it the next day he was competing in this saber event and he was looking pretty good to finish in a top two or three seeing as he'd won both of his opening bouts however then entered the king and (laughs) the crown prince alongside him and their whole entourage and the officials decided that they were going to start the event over again so they could enjoy it all oh like i'm sorry you knew what time it started at just arrive on time it's the olympics unbelievable so they decided to start it all over again. Felix Adolf Schmal with, I don't know, the better part of a 100-kilometer race behind him the previous day, winning the first two rounds here out of four, completely wiped clean off the slate. They had to start again, and he only won one of the four bouts after that, and he ended up in fourth place behind the Greek duo of Iannis Giogidas and Tilemachos Karakolas, as well as the Danish Holger Nielsen, who is a big name for all of the handball fans of the Olympipod. I'm sure there will be at least seven of them listening. Also for big fans of um, external cardiopulmonary resuscitation. (laughs) I'm not too sure how many of those we're going to get straight into our podcast, but if it weren't for the king, the crown prince and his entourage coming in and restarting, then Schmal would have actually been in a a three-way tie for first place. But in the end, he finished in fourth. Uh, He eventually got some glory in the Olympics, though, on the saddle, back on the bike, because he won the 12-hour cycling race. And, well, he finished third in both the 333 meters time trial and the 10-kilometer race. So cycling, it seems, was his forte, but also not too bad with the Sabre. There are a lot of events that I think, you know, deserve to come back, but the 12-hour cycling race is not one of them. Absolutely nobody needs that. 
No. I mean, how far can you go in 12 hours? Come on. And I, I believe... And or, or are you going round and round, maybe? I believe Shamal was pretty sneaky uh, in this. Oh. He, lapped, he lapped the field really early in the race and then just kept pace right behind the second place guy for the next, I don't know, 11 hours. Well, that just, I mean, I, I'm not sure that's sneaky. I think that's just clever. Oh, well, very clever. I mean, yes. For, um, like, I, I, think, I, guess, like, I think that's the right way to do it. If I could cycle, I think that's how I would <laughs> the men's. Could uh, cycle for 12 hours. For 12 hours. Oh my god. Would you be arsed? Is my is my question. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the gentleman who finished ahead of Schmal uh, in third place uh, in the Saber, Holger Nielsen. I want to speak about him for a moment as well because besides finishing third in the fencing, he got a silver and a bronze or second and third place in the shooting competitions, and he also took part in the discus. He was a uh, multiple sport athlete but he's probably most famous in modern sport as being the man who uh, is credited with developing an early set of rules for handball in 1898 although the germans would like to think otherwise the germans believe that they came up with handball and they won't thank me for this but it was definitely holger nielsen and yeah as he said he also developed a form of external cardiopulmonary resuscitation in 1932 like I'm sorry to keep on harking over this, but like fencing is also really the kind of sport that you can really drop in on. You really don't need to start at the beginning. It doesn't have this massive narrative. You can you can just go in and watch individual matches. So I I, I don't think this needs to be restarted. No. That's that's just that's you know I I just want to say put that officially on record. Yeah, and it's another another example of a Dane benefiting from it, thanks to a Greek slash Danish king. Crafty Danes. That's uh, that's what I take away from this Olympics. They only had two athletes, the Danes, but by George, did they benefit with King George? Absolutely shocking. I can't, I can't believe that the Olympics would be corrupted in such a way. Well, it's only the beginning. <laughs> it's only the beginning. <laughs> Our final section of this podcast and every podcast from now on in Olympipod will be the sport swap <gasps> in which one of us or a guest and in this case you will decide which of the modern olympic sports will be kicked out of the program and which sport you're going to bring in so do you know this was a difficult one for the first one because first of all there was nothing in the 1896 that we want to save like the all of the original sports are still there. There were a couple of different disciplines, but no, I, I'm fine with that. So I am going to go for tug of war. I want tug of war back in the Olympics. There's a governing body of tug of war, the TWIF, the tug of war international federation. There are 53 member nations of the TWIF. So this is, this is a truly global sport. It has precedence because it was a five times an Olympic sport from 1900 to 1920. And it remains a recognized sport by the IOC. But there would be a few things that I would change from the original Olympic form of it. So nations were allowed to enter a couple of different teams if they wanted to, which meant that some years countries had a complete monopoly on medals. So like one year, America got gold, silver and bronze because they had different teams. They also had no weight classes back then, which <laughs> has now been changed. The, the TWIF has changed that. I went on to the TOWA website, which is the UK's national body for tug of war. 
and finds the following mission statement. The TOWA consider that tug of war certainly warrants reintroduction into the Olympic Games. The rules are easy to understand and the sport is spectator friendly. In addition, the rules, the results do not depend on subjective scoring by a panel of judges. Looking at you, boxing. Tug of war is accessible to everyone at all levels, as a sport does not require a large amount of costly equipment, space or bespoke sports stadia. Faster, higher, stronger is the Olympic motto, and tug of war certainly fits the bill. The tug of war association remains hopeful that one day tug of war will take centre stage on the world's largest sporting platform. Well, TOWA, you have our support. You have the official support of the Olympopod. And which sport would you take out? (sighs) This is difficult, Chris. So originally I was thinking, because it would probably fit under athletics, I could just take out something from the track and field Mm. events. So I was thinking... Nobody likes the 10,000 metres, not even people in the 10,000 metres. So let's just get rid of that. But then when I was looking at it, it turns out that tug of war was its own sport. It didn't go under um, athletics or under track and field. So I'm going to have to take out one of the actual big ones. And look, I've already said there's an issue with boxing, but I feel like that that's, that's too easy. I think like I would get a lot of accusations of snobbery if I said BMX obviously basketball doesn't deserve to be there (laughs) why is tennis there oh well 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 I was at basketball in 2012 I went to BMX and tennis in 2016 both were brilliant but please I I love tennis too but I'm just not sure it fits into the amateur spirit and I know I know the modern the like 21st century Olympic Games, it's, look, I'm not picking tennis, so don't worry. It's a very safe one to go for, for the first Olympopod, but I suppose I'll go with golf. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think we'll lose any of our 10 listeners if I go with golf at this stage. <laughs> Fair enough. Is there any particular reason why? I mean, everything. That's my reason. Everything to do with golf at the Olympics. No one, like, literally, like, the golfers didn't want to be there. So, like, why why would we want to watch it? So, no, we're taking out golf. We're putting in tug of war. Do you even know who won it? Who won in 2016? Justin Rose, was it? I don't oh, know. Oh, if I'm right here, oh, let's do a quick, quick church. <laughs> I, I, I don't know who won the women's one, but I think it was either Justin Rose or the Swede. Justin Rose ahead of Henrik Stenshin. Yes, okay. Can I say something about Tug of War? Go for it. How I would like to see Tug of War reintroduced into the Olympics, and it would be a bit like in its early days, like in 1900, that there wouldn't be a fixed team for it that would train for it. What? You would set a day aside, maybe like the real final day of the Olympics would be the Tug of War day, and you draw out different sports, and one athlete from each sport would go and represent their country in the in the tug of war team so you'd have like a rugby player a shot putter alongside a diver and a golf player and a gymnast and a gymnast okay does every country so there's eight people on the team if they pull out a gymnast does that mean everyone has to put a gymnast on yes yeah but now what about countries like but what about countries that want to compete that or don't have a wide range because then obviously like the americans are going to do much better than everyone else or the Chinese like countries that 
have massive teams. So no, Chris, you're absolutely wrong. And um, this, this, we are, we are like absolutely not. It's not your sport to introduce. By all means, by all means, another week you can take out my tug of war and you can put in your bastardized tug of war and um, hybrids. However, absolutely not. Get away from my tug of war. I I don't think it would make the Americans, for example, better because they wouldn't have any training. Chris, I I I, I don't I don't want <laughs> I don't want our podcast to, to be destroyed on the first episode because we fall out over this. You are wrong. <laughs> okay, fine. It looks fine on paper. It would never work. We're gonna have and, and also like the poor the poor um international federation of tug wars like they've they've been training they they go to the european championships or the world championships of tug of war and like you're now saying that oh no we're going to get other people to do it no no you're wrong ruth if there's one thing i've learned in the previous few months it's that describing a sport you know nothing about and making it seem as easy as possible is the surefire way to get attention for your podcast and on that note I rest my case. Do we have a beef? I don't know. We soon will. Just you wait. (laughs) Wait till the tug of war kids come. Oh my goodness. Okay. No, yeah, they're going to come after you though. I'm fine. I I believe in the orthodoxy of tug of war. And actually, I'm going to be really looking forward to talking about tug of war in 1904 in our third Olympopod. All I'm doing is stirring the pot. Be, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll have we'll have the uh, Tug of Wars and the 10,000 metre athletes coming after us. And we'll have uh, a new one of these in every single Olympipod until we completely destroy yeah. the Olympic yeah. programme. And we'll have an updated list as we go on. And people can follow us on Twitter so they can have a look and see at our... Because I believe you very ambitiously said that you were going to create a table yes. for all of these new sports. Oh, yes. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that table, which we will put up on our Twitter, at Olympopods. And do we have an Instagram? We do. Okay, also, I think that is also at Olympopods because for some reason, that domain was never taken. So time will tell. Time will tell if we get sued. <laughs> After all of this and the, the glowing success that Athens was in 1896, the Greeks wanted to have it again. They wanted to keep the Olympics at home, but indeed they had to wait another 10 years for the now pointless intercalated games and 108 years for the real deal to come back to Greece. Well, lucky for you, Olympipod listeners, you're not going to have to wait that long if you want another episode because we'll be back with the second Olympipod in just a few days time you're not even going to have to wait two weeks for the next pod because we're going to bring you the next one on Monday we do appreciate how difficult a time this is for many many people with the Olympics being postponed so we're going to try and strip uh, feed you as many pointless facts as possible also like I mean the interesting point I mean did the 1900 Olympics even happen will our next podcast even happen only time will tell fantastic now that is a cliffhanger (laughs) 